I'd like to say good morning. Um, I didn't bring my glasses up here, so I can't see y'all. You're all kind of fuzzy, but that's okay. I know you're there. Um, it's been a, an interesting and challenging week. This is the first week of the uh, full week of the new administration. Lots of changes happening. Millions of people are being impacted. Some are concerned. Some are encouraged. Um, the only constant in the universe is change, and so we're seeing that. A lot of changes going on. As I uh, look even in my own circle of friends um, within the church here, I see a lot of change. Uh, Alex, who stepped in for me to teach the Sunday school this morning, he just went through the process of building a new house and moving in, both of which are incredibly stressful. I don't know if you've ever been through that building a house deal, but it is, is quite distressing at times. And uh, so he's going through that, one of the major stressors in life, a move. Um, we have people that are going through uh, new additions to their family. We've got Ryan in the new addition there. We've got people that are uh, going through new challenges with their health. I think of Mitch Jesse and how he got a hip replacement. Are you here this morning, Mitch? If you are, raise your hand. Um, so we want to be praying for these people that are going through a lot of different interesting challenges and joys um, in their life. Uh, a lot of people are changing jobs. I happen to be one of those. Uh, have an opportunity to change um, in the agency that I work for within the government. As many of you know, um, I currently work for the uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. My wife likes to, to tease me that I'm into damnation and salvation um, <laughs> because I'm, a, I'm an electrical engineer. I work in hydroelectric dams. That's the damnation part. And that I actually... Uh, I'm really excited about the message of Christ, his redemption of my life, and I like to share that, share the gospel. That's the salvation part. So into damnation and salvation. Um, and when I announced to the Army Corps um, that I was taking a, ending my service with them, taking a job with another government agency, um, I got a lot, of, a lot of response from that. I got a lot of emails uh, thanking me for my service and uh, wishing me well, congratulating me. I got one particular email from a, a good friend that I've worked with my whole time there, um, nearly 20 years, and uh, it was one of those emails that makes your day. You know, I want to save that one forever. But in the course of the email, he shared trivia with me because he knows I like to file these useless facts away um, so that someday I can win Jeopardy. So he, he sent me this, this email. It says, on April 11th, 2005, the TV show Jeopardy, the final Jeopardy question was, how many steps does the guard take during his walk across the tomb of the unknowns? He said, oh, and by the way, all the contestants got it wrong. So, do my research. How many steps does the guard take during his walk across the tomb of the unknowns, and why? Well, he takes 21 steps. And it alludes to that 21-gun salute, which is the highest honor given to any military or foreign dignitary. That 21 is repeated in several things, like there's 21 seconds in between his 90-degree turn as he's walking uh, north to south on the, the west wall of the tomb. Um, he does a 90-degree turn to the east, waits 21 seconds, does a 90-degree turn then to the north-south, and continues his walk. There's 21 seconds in between. Lots of little trivia there for the next time you're on Jeopardy. Um, but he also noted how the Army has not let the tomb be unguarded for a single minute since 1937. It's a 24-7 job. Even during Hurricane, uh, Hurricane Isabel in 2003 and Superstorm Standy in 2012, the Guard faithfully marched their post, and they actually made the news because they were out there in, in uh, hurricane force conditions um, to actually... Um, 
give that honor and tribute. And that's because they're rigorously trained and very disciplined because they understand this is the highest honor that can be accorded to servicemen is to, to serve in this guard. Well, my friend had a reason for taking me down this road. Uh, he wanted to appeal to my sense of loyalty and duty because he doesn't want me to leave. And he knew that it's like, oh, I know Dave's got this loyalty button. I'm going to punch it. So, uh, and he knew that's true. I am keenly uh, aware and understand the, the uh, Army values that are stated, uh, loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. And if you've ever heard me teaching in Sunday school, you understand that I, I know how one's deepest held values motivate our actions through expression of our will. The actions that we see on the outside are the result of deeply held values and our will on the inside, how the will prioritizes those values. So as I was changing job and looking at going from, from one department of government to another, um, I really had to wrestle with my values and my will and how that would impact my choice of service. Now, this is service both to my family, my wife, to my kids, my service to my community, my church, my service to my country. And it was not an easy decision. Those of you that prayed through that with me know that I really wrestled with this because my highest goal is to get my will and my values in accord with God's will and his values. And that's not easy. How do we understand what God's will is? Well, that's what we're going to take a look at this morning. We're going to be looking at Jesus' words. We're looking at Matthew uh, chapter uh, 6 this morning, 6 and 7. Um, but this whole section is called the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll find it in chapters uh, 5 through 7. Pastor Bob began this study last week, and we'll pick it up this morning starting in chapter 6, verse 19. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 811. Um, but as you're going there, um, I'll help set the stage about the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I'll start out by saying Sermon on the Mount is the longest discourse on the law of God in the New Testament. So when you think of the law of God, what do you think about? Usually you think about the Ten Commandments and the sundry laws that show up in Exodus and Leviticus, or you might think of what is properly called the law versus the law of the prophets, the law being the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Um, oftentimes we think of it as prescriptive, that it's a list of do's and don'ts. But I want to suggest to you this morning it's less uh, prescriptive and more descriptive of who God is, what he values, what he decrees, and what he desires. When God says, do not kill, do not commit adultery, or lie, or covet, he's showing us what he is, what his values are, what his kingdom is like, and what is necessary for us to join him in that kingdom life. He made a, a declaration. He said, be holy for I am holy. It's a very high uh, command. Jesus said in this very Sermon on the Mount, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That puts a really high bar on what he's talking about, about the law. And if we understand that that law is the heart of God, of what he values, and the expression of his will, that helps us 
as an interpretive key. In fact, um, Jesus is going to show us that, uh, what the heart of the law is, and what I would say is that the, the law of God and the will of God are equal. If you can think about it like an equation, the law of God is the expression of the will of God. There's an equal sign in this equation. And that can help you understand when you have to make tough choices about what you want to do, how you can get your will in accord with God's will by studying his law. And that's what we're looking at this morning. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And if you actually look at the classic um, uh, descriptions of law, very succinct in Exodus, for example, you'll see the Sermon on the Mount actually follows the same structure, talking about the same things. But Jesus said, you know, you say don't kill, let me explain to you the heart of the law. And that's what he's been doing. He's been uh, giving us that. So we're going to start this morning, pick up where Bob left off last week at chapter 6, verse 19. And I'll read. It says, uh, uses Jesus' words, so if you have a red letter Bible, it's all red. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus is telling us to pay attention to the will of God. He's saying pay attention to what you focus on. And he gives us three examples to understand the values of God and the priorities that we should keep. And he gives these three examples as treasure, eyes, and servitude. Let's take a look at the first one, treasures. He says, stop storing up worldly treasures. If you look at the language, it has the expression that this is a, an activity that's already going on. It's kind of how we're built. We're built to, to do this treasuring activity. We do it all the time. We treasure a lot of different things. And I'm not talking about just being a collector in the worldly sense, although some people treasure that way. But I'm talking about kind of the way we're built. We're built to treasure and to value things. And he's saying stop treasuring these worldly things. Don't look at materialism. It says, rather, store up heavenly treasures. So the treasuring is not a bad activity, but the motive and the purpose behind it is what's at, at stake here. What's the value? And what Jesus is saying is have a reorientation of your heart from a focus on the world to a focus on the kingdom of heaven and God and his values. What are these heavenly treasures? that we're supposed to be treasuring up. Well, he doesn't kind of give us that piece of information, but what we know is it's not performance-based. It's not about accumulating land or wealth or material things. It's about relationship with God and that uh, having our priorities in line with the priorities of the kingdom. That's what we're to treasure up. And he says, where your treasure is, there your heart is. See, the heart is of central importance in this whole dialogue here. It's all about what's on the inside, what's going on inside. That's your true character. Your heart will give priority to your values, and he knows that. So he gives us another example to help kind of flesh this out a little bit more. He gives us a very concrete example of eyes, 
right? So um, we understand eyes is a physical part of our body. He's using it metaphorically as a concept of our dual nature, that we have an immaterial part and a material part. So we have a flesh and bone body that you can see and touch and feel and act in the world. And then we also have an immaterial part. Sometimes we call it the soul, where our mind, our will, our emotions, all of those components of ourselves that don't actually occupy time and space, they're immaterial, but nonetheless, they're tied directly to the body. Only God can separate the body and the soul, right? And that we operate as a whole person, immaterial and material. And what happens is it says the eye is the lamp of the body. So what comes into the eye, what comes into the soul, has the effect of potentially uh, corrupting the whole of your life or bringing illumination to the whole of your life. He wants us to understand that we live as both soul and body, and what comes into our soul affects our body. And if you have a bad eye, that is, is not a good thing. And I think of a bad eye, so I didn't bring my glasses here this morning, so I say you're fuzzy. That's because I have an astigmatism. Uh, astigmatism is a physical condition where the eye is, is spherical, and because of the, the spherical construction of the eye, it actually focuses or helps direct the light into the lens so that it focuses on the back of your retina and you actually see an image, right? Hooks your brain, all these parts work together. Um, but what happens is with astigmatism is the eye is not perfectly spherical. And so that focal point can be in front of the retina, it can be behind the retina, it can be both. In other words, things can be fuzzy far away, they can be fuzzy close up, it can completely debilitate you if you have an uncorrected astigmatism. That's the example that Jesus has given here. He's saying, what you allow to come into your heart affects the whole of your life. He says that improper focus corrupts the whole. It affects how we see truth and light. And the third example he gives is one of servitude. He says you can't serve two masters with your heart. He's talking about loyalty. If you know the, the definition of the word loyalty, you know that by definition you can't divide it. You can't have two loyalties. You'll either be loyal to one and disloyal to the other. That's what he says. You'll love one, hate the other, or you'll serve one, be devoted to one, and not the other. In other words, you can't split your loyalty between God and the world. We need to have the right focus of what we're doing. He's saying get your priorities right. Value what God values. But we also need to have our concerns rightly focused, understanding what needs that we have and which we should actually care about. Not that you would never care about a need, but we, under, we need to understand what should be the focus there. So let's take a look at uh, the follow-on passage here. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, 
Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is saying that we need to have right concerns in life. What concerns us? Our heart concern should be for God's kingdom and righteousness. That's what he lays out for us. This should be our concern, our major concern. He says that we should stop being concerned for meeting our physical needs in this world as God knows our needs and he'll meet them. And he starts out by saying, hey, reflect on this. Reflect on the true needs in life. They're more than your physical needs. It's more than food, water, or drink, um, clothing. Life is more than that. Reflect on that first. And then he gives an example. He says, consider the birds. And he gives the example. They're not concerned about their retirement plan, right? They're not uh, sowing and reaping and building barns, and yet God feeds them and he cares for them. Aren't you much more valuable than the birds? I love uh, John Stott's uh, comment on the, the birds analogy. He, he loves seeing the, the heart of God displayed in nature. And so he came up with a, a term for it. He calls it ornithology, which is, ornithology is a study of birds. Ornithology is a study of using birds as an example to understand the heart of God. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's helping us to understand what God values. And he's saying, um, he values us. Don't worry or attempt to con- uh, control your life because All of your worry can't add a single hour to your life. I would say it can't add an extra breath to your life if you want to take it that small. God has all of your breaths already in his book. He already knows you from before you were born. And he knows you when you come face to face with him. So our anxiety is unnecessary, it's unworthy, and it's unfruitful doesn't do anything for you. Then he gives an example of the flowers. He says, check it out. Even Solomon wasn't this grand. Don't worry about what you'll wear. God has placed more value on you than the temporal things of this world. So don't worry about these things because God already knows that you need them. The reason people worry about this is because they seek to have control and not faith. See, worry is the antithesis of faith. The two are opposites. When you're in a worry place, you're trying to control your environment. When you're in a faith place, you're giving it over to God who has total control of your environment. It's replacing God's values with the values of this world. Jesus says, don't do it. Get your focus right. So Jesus commands us to place priority on, uh, and concerns on God's kingdom and righteousness and all these other things he'll add to us. They'll take care of themselves. Now, when I read this, at face value, it seems very idealistic. You know what idealism is? It's uh, the world as it should be, right? So this seems like very idealistic and not realistic, the world as it is. This statement can often lead people to a crisis of faith. And that's exactly what happened and is described in Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Faith. If you've never read it, I commend you to read it. It's a great book. It's about this very thing that we're wrestling with here in the Sermon on the Mount. 
in that he gives an example of two men, Charles Templeton and Billy Graham. Now, we know of Billy Graham. How many of you know of Charles Templeton, if you hadn't read Case for Faith? Very early on in these men's lives and their call to service and the Lord's, um, Lord's plan for their life, they both came to a crisis of faith. Charles Templeton looked at what Scripture said about God providing for us, and then he looked at what the world presented, realism versus idealism, and he said, I see suffering and evil in the world, and it seems like God is not doing anything about it. I don't believe that he is good and can be trusted. And he rejected the faith, even though he was a greater evangelist at that time than Billy Graham. Billy Graham came to the same place, and he said, you know, there's a lot of things I don't understand. This is truly a cognitive dissonant moment. I cannot reconcile these two um, beliefs. But nonetheless, I'm going to trust God. That's what this passage is about, trusting God. It's not about the realism of it. It's about what you trust, where your concerns are, what your priorities are about. And Jesus, to help us know that life is difficult, that when we say God knows our needs and he meets them, that doesn't mean you're without struggle. He goes on to say, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You're going to have trouble, folks. And you need to have your priority in the right place. You need to have your concerns in the right place. It's all about focus. Get your concerns right. Trust in him for life, even in the face of difficulties. Well, having our focus on the right things, Jesus then commands us to be discerning without condemning. First, he wants us to understand the nature and purpose of judgment. We read, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Disciples of the Lord should not be condemning, even though that's the natural state of humanity. See, people make judgments all day long. You can't get out of bed without making a judgment, without deciding what you're going to do, what's good and what's true. But the difference between us and God is, is that he's God and we're not. He can see the end from the beginning. He knows what good truly is. In fact, he declares it. It's part of his decree. And so we find ourselves in a place where we need to make judgments we need to uh, engage in this activity of discerning, but what we have a natural tendency to do is to condemn. That's why we have that saying, people that live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. It's reminding us that we're gonna be measured by the same thing that we measure, right? I think of the example of the finger pointing, right? You, as you're doing that, you got the wag going on, you got three fingers pointing back at you, right? So he wants us to, to fully understand this. So he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out from your own eye, then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We're to judge oneself first, have our sins removed 
before helping others. And when we help others, we help them with what we have learned about the grace of God in our own lives. For me, this was made really concrete several years ago, 25 or so. And uh, I have a friend, I'll say his name's Robert, and Robert was uh, amazing. He was an Eagle Scout. He was a valedictorian of his class. He uh, did extremely well in college, got a great job with the pharmaceutical company right out of college, uh, was very successful by worldly standards. He made some poor choices. He got involved in drug trafficking. He ended up in prison. It was in prison that he met the Lord on his knees. He was transformed in a place that he would have never chosen. And he came out of prison and had a really tough time getting a job because he was an ex-con. He had, uh, had a record that he had to declare for certain kinds of employment. He was automatically disqualified. Others would judge him and say, I'm not having an ex-con working for me. Well, I met Robert while he was going through this point in his life trying to find a, a steady job. And at the time for me, it was also a really tough time in my life. I had a, a small electronic shop down on Highway 99 in Vancouver, and I was struggling to pay the bills, pay the employees, um, and then have enough left over to bring some, enough home to feed my two children that I was raising as a single parent. It was a tough time. I remember I lived from day to day, from week to week, and it was no longer than that. It was a really tough time, and Robert and I, were, we became friends, and we were talking. One day, he stopped off at my shop, and we were talking about the world and things. I had a, a particularly bad habit um, of nicotine addiction. So now I say nicotine addiction. I see the fingers wagging. And uh, I, what I did is even much more bold than that. Um, because I couldn't afford tobacco, I did what we call snipe hunting. Um, as uh, this is an, an old term, goes back to the 1800s, where you'd go out and you'd collect discarded butts. And you would collect them and then you would empty the butts and then you would roll another cigarette with a cigarette paper. And uh, so you did your own rollies. And he came into my shop and we were talking and he saw this collection of butts and tobacco and rolling papers there in my, my uh, workshop. And, uh, and he laughed. And he said, oh, I remember that. I remember that. You know, God can deliver you from that too. And then we went on and we talked about something. And the way he said it was not condemning. And I know when I tell you guys I had a nicotine addiction and not, not only that, but I was a snipe hunter, right? I see that, right? That's what Jesus is telling us. Don't do that. Let me remove the log. He removed the log from my friend Robert's life. And there was a collection of them. So that when Robert saw me struggling with logs in my life, looked like a speck to him, he says, hey, let me tell you what God did. He can deliver you from that. That, that struck me as true. That night, that week, I went home, and it just kept bothering me. God can deliver you from that. And so I gave it to God. And sure enough, he's faithful, just as he says. And it wasn't easy, but... I was delivered. God can deliver you from that. Robert was telling me how God had worked in his life to remove that log. We need to first look inward before we can look outward to help others. And when we do help, we help with the grace that we've been given in our own lives. 
Jesus says this discernment piece is really important because there are times when you need to be discerning about what you put out there. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Whoop, jumped to the wrong place. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. There, in discernment, there are times when you know that to put the grace of God in a place where it cannot be received is going to be dishonoring to God. So you just don't do it. But you need help with that. Is anybody really good at discernment in here? We need help. So what does, he, what does he do? He says, turn to me for help. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and one who seeks finds. And one who knocks, to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? We need to trust God for help in all things, especially discernment. We need to ask, seek, and knock. And the language there is one of... of, um, Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. And that the asking is as a pauper coming to the king with hands open. We have nothing that we're bringing. And we're asking God, who is the king and has everything, for help. And that we're doing that with a sense of urgency. We're seeking it. And we're doing it with a sense of personal involvement and commitment. We're knocking. We're in there. And God will help. That's what he says. And he gives us two examples. He gives us an example of bread and fish. He says, if you, he's going to argue from the lesser to the greater, if you being evil and limited and, and, and having corruption in you can give a good gift to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, who is unbounded, unlimited, and holy, be able to give you a truly good gift? He'll be able to answer your prayers. We need to appeal to God for right thinking in discernment and in all of the issues and concerns of our lives. And having done this inside work of learning discernment without condemning and trusting God for help in all things, we should have a heart for others. So whatever you wish, Jesus says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You know, when I first read that, I thought, well, this is like Christian karma, right? If I do this, then they'll do that. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you know, you see what goodness is. You see what goodness is in God answering prayers in your life. You see what goodness is and what it would look like in that other person's life. Well, you do that. Not because you're expecting a return. This is not Christian karma. This is the outworking of a transformed heart. It's that inward transformation being lived outward. And he says, this is the law and the prophets. So when you think, it says like, well, I don't see the word law in here. No, he's actually teaching you the law of God, the will of God, the heart of God. These are Jesus' words. And having our focus and right thinking uh, on things and being transformed for discerning without condemning, Jesus now commands us to act with a pure heart. We read in 
Verse 13, 14 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus is commanding us to choose God's kingdom. This is a command here, by the way. Choose God's kingdom over the world. Choose life over death. Does it sound like the law in Deuteronomy? It's exactly what he's doing. He's commanding us to choose God. The world's way is easy, but it leads to destruction. God's way is hard, but it leads to eternal life. I don't know. I don't like to sign up for hard things. But what he's asking us to do is to be obedient. Nobody likes to hear that. I'm in obedience school. I need to learn to be obedient. I need to learn to align my will to God's will. I need to be in accord with him. And Jesus wants us to know what this means, what kingdom life requires, um, and what the broad way of the world with its counterfeits presents. So he gives us this example of false prophets. He says, beware of the false prophets who come up to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. False prophets are intentionally deceptive. It's not necessarily that what they say is untrue, but they're false on the inside. Their inside person is a wolf. Their outside person is a sheep. The sheep looks good. They're all about look good, but it's not that way on the inside, and this is intentional. We we call that when people are different on the inside and the outside as we say they have no integrity, and that you'll be able to discover that the longer you're with them. It'll be evident by how they live. Their intent is worldly gain and storing up Heaven, or earthly treasures. It's not about storing heavenly treasures. They'll be judged and ultimately destroyed. But more alarming than understanding that there, there are false prophets is this next passage. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So a false prophet is intentionally deceptive, but there are some that are self-deceived. What does self-deception look like? Well, they profess Lord and do works in his name, but what is their real motive? Is their motive so that they'll gain some kind of merit or recognition or approval? You know, we don't come to God with any merit. We don't come to God with anything that would make us approved, that we obligate God in some way to to choose us because we're so good. And yet there are people that actually have that heart and that mindset, and they don't realize that they're on a road to destruction. We need to be people of integrity. We need to understand what a pure heart is, and a lawless heart is the actual opposite of integrity. It's one who, on the inside, although they may not be an intentional ravenous wolf, they're so misled in their beliefs, which are not true according to the word of God, 
that they're doomed for destruction. They're self-deceived. So the bottom line is we must live with integrity. We must always be true. And if you don't know what that is, you should probably be asking the question honestly. The first step in integrity is being honest and saying, you know, I don't get it. Help me understand. Jesus, help my unbelief. Right? So finally, Jesus says we must not only be hearers of the word, but doers. We read, everyone then who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and, uh, and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. We not only must hear what Jesus is saying about the word of God and the will of God, his law, but we must obey. We must be doers, hearers and doers. That's what it means to have integrity, to be the same on the outside as on the inside, to live inside out. We need to be hearers and doers of God's word. So how does this discourse end? It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus speaks with the authority of God because he is God. Our Lord is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. God became man, came to earth to help make the law clear, the will of God clear, so that we could be in relation to him. That's what this is all about. Jesus loves us so much that he's willing to call a falsehood a falsehood when it's a falsehood. He wants us to come into that truth. So, Jesus was, is teaching about God's will for us, what the inside person should be, having our will in accord with God's will, having his values as our values, his priorities and concerns as our own. So what must we do? Well, we must value what God values. You know, when he values life, I know that because he said don't kill. He values uh, families and relationships. I know that because he said don't commit adultery and don't covet your wife, uh, your neighbor's wife, right? So we need to value what God values and trust him entirely by changing our values, thinking, and conduct to be in accord, in alignment with his will. Not just on the inside uh, but in our daily decisions and actions. When I had to wrestle with the job choice that I needed to make, I was wrestling with God's will because I want to bring my will in accord to his will. And I want that to actually show in my life. We must follow wherever God leads, even if it's difficult. Enter by that narrow gate, even if it's hard. We must live lives of integrity, that congruity between our heart and our behavior. We must be obedient to his word, hearers and not doers. That's what he's commanding us to do. Let's come before him right now and lay that before his throne, the areas of our life that he's working on. Lord, we just thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Lord, for those that um, are being challenged to believe you in a new way. Lord, maybe they've heard, but they've been holding on to their own own values, and you've challenged them to give that up and, and take on your values today, to stand for you, 
to enter in at that narrow gate. Lord, we ask that you answer their prayer as they are persistent in asking and seeking and knocking. And Lord, those of us that you're challenging us by pointing out the logs in our eyes that may look like specks to others, but Lord, you're doing a work and we want you to do that. Lord, please, we ask you, continue to be merciful and gracious towards us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of this in your very words. Amen.